things that were before us. Um, CBCC exists because of the work of many faithful ministers that we have trained um, and faithful people that served uh, in the shadow prior to uh, FACC being formed. And so I, I say that to say that what's happening now um, isn't you know, something new. It's something that's been building for many years because of the faithfulness of many. And as so often the case, the, the olive tree that was planted 200 years ago um, is still bearing fruit. And so we thank the Lord for that, and I want us to be mindful of that. There are many seeds that were sown years ago that are now bearing tremendous fruit, and we want to give the Lord the glory for that and recognize that, as well as thank the Lord uh, for what he's doing now. Romans chapter 8, and if you remember, I had a six-point sermon uh, last week, but I decided that that was too much, and so I split it up uh, into two parts. The first part... Um, we, last week we discussed um, this promise in Romans 8, 28. And one of the things that we said about this promise is uh, we said that there are three things this promise is not saying. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those that love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we said that that promise does not mean that all things are good. That's not what it means talked about that last week. And the second thing we said is that this promise doesn't say that more good things will happen to us than bad things as Christians. And we need to know that. Some of us suffer our whole lives, our whole lives. Um, and we have more bad days than good days. We often do. But that doesn't mean that the promises of God have failed. And the third thing that this promise doesn't claim is that this promise doesn't claim to be for everybody. Notice again, the text is clear. It's for those who are loved by God. That's the subjective experience that we feel, our love for God. But it ends with this objective reality, those who are called according to his purpose, meaning those who belong to him. That's who this promise is for. If you are an unbeliever, this promise is not the case for you. And one of the tragic things about the life of the unbeliever is they have no confidence that all things work together for good. In fact, from their perspective, they have more bad days than good days. Things are working out for the bad. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at three claims this promise is making. So if you're taking notes, it's going to be three claims that this promise is making. But before we dive into that, uh, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word. And we ask now that your word um, enliven us, that your word lodge deeply in us. And may you bless the proclamation of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's read the text, beginning at verse number 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestines to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom, he foreign, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be proclaimed unto you. Amen. Amen. Just by way of reminder, I wanted to tell us that the promise of God is something glorious and wonderful in the Bible. It's God's vowing to us that he will be with us in the good times and the bad times. Whenever we see the promises of God, they are like redemptive historical cords that bind God to his people throughout the history of redemption. It is God extending his hand to you and asking you the fundamental question, will you trust him? Will you trust him with your life? Will you trust him with your being? Will you trust him even amid suffering in this world? And that's what God extends to us today. And so as we looked at three things that this uh, text is not saying, or this promise in verse 28 is not saying, I'm going to transition now to talk to you about three claims this promise is making. Now, before I begin, I want to say something that's very clear. What I'm about to give you is are not pat answers. They're not life hacks. You know, one of the things about the world that we live in is everyone wants to give us a life hack, something to make our lives a little bit easier. When I was growing up, my mother would um, listen to uh, some of these songs. I remember one song by Nat King Cole. And Nat King Cole uh, sang this song called Smile. And some of you might have remembered that. Maybe that might be your favorite song. But in the, in the song, Nat King Cole would say, Smile though your heart is aching. Smile though your heart is breaking. Smile through fear and sorrow. When you can't do anything else, just smile. Now that's a nice song, and I'm not dumping on the song, but I am saying this. Some of us are enduring some suffering right now where we can't smile. And a smile just won't do. And so I don't want to give you a technique today on how to endure suffering, because that will not do you good. There are times when you don't need to smile. There are times you need to be bawling your eyes out because what you're going through is hard and difficult and painful. And you need to understand that. The Bible is not about giving you life hacks or pat answers or telling you things to pacify you. That's not what the Bible does. What the Bible does instead is give you promises that form convictions so that when you are going through suffering or hard times or difficult times in your life, you're able to endure them because you have the conviction that there's a God on your side who will never leave you or forsake you. And so you need to remember that because what I'm about to give you, again, not pat answers, not life hacks, not things that are treatable. This is rubber meets the road in life. And I know through pastoring you for the last three years, I know from talking to you face to face, you all are going through some very difficult and hard times in various areas in your life. And I would not dare stand up here and give you three points for a better you. Because I know for a fact, based on my study 
of God's word, that that's not how Christianity works. The way God, our holy God, works is he gives us promises, and those promises form convictions, and then we live our lives in light of those convictions. Amen? So that's what I'm going to give you today. So here they are. First point. Here are three claims this promise is making. The first one is this. We know that our suffering is not in vain. We know that our suffering is not in vain. Notice what the text says. Paul does something very interesting here. If you go uh, up to verse number 26, Paul says that there's something we do not know. And then if you go down to verse 28, which is our main text, he says that there's something we do know. So look at verse 26, underline that. What don't we know? He said, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Now pause there. What is Paul saying here? Of course he's saying we don't know what to pray for, but ask yourself the question, why is he saying that? Well, the reason why Paul is saying that is simply this. You and I in every given situation do not know the plan of God and what God is doing in that particular circumstance. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on to say, but even though that's the case, there is something we do know. And the thing that we do know is God's ultimate plan for us, and that is to glorify us and to make us into the image of Christ. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, why is that so important to know? Here's why. Anyone that's endured suffering of any kind know how anxious we get and unsettled we get as a result of suffering. Everyone knows that. And even in the midst of suffering, we know that there are some things that we don't know. There's a pastor and scholar by the name of Donald Barnhouse who spoke of a pastor that when he went to somebody's house, especially someone who has endured something tragic, he would often bring along this. This is a bookmark made of silk. And Barnhouse said that this godly pastor, after he had conversed with the family just a little bit, would, would take this from his hand and show them this side. They would examine it. And then Barnhouse would tell them, turn it over. And when they turned it over, there would be something written on here that said that God loves you. And what Barnhouse uh, said that this pastor was doing is he was reminding them that life looks a lot like this at times when we're going through struggles, right? If you've ever gone through anything hard or difficult in your life, if you've ever gone through a particular trial, your life looks like this. You don't know what God is doing. You don't know the purpose behind why God is bringing you through the struggle. You don't know why your marriage fell apart. You don't know why you've just been diagnosed with this sickness. You don't know why you're in a job that uh, seems to you a dead-end job where you find no joy in it. You don't understand anything that God might be doing in your life. But then if you turn it over to the opposite side, you see the big picture that God ultimately is sanctifying you and making you more like his son. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. That you and I, in the midst of suffering, often ask ourselves the question, what's the point of this particular trial? What's the point of this particular suffering? And we don't know that. We don't know what it is. That's walled off from us. 
Now, I say that to a bunch of 21st century Christians who love to mourn. Now, I have four children, and I often tell people that God didn't bless me at any age of old. And, and on top of that, God didn't bless me with children who aren't inquisitive. And any time we do anything, they don't just want the details, they want the details. Which I find out is, is like the new hog for wanting to know every detail. And you know, sometimes it's the case where I can't provide them with the details. Partly because I don't know all the details myself. But partly because knowing all the details does nothing for us. Several, uh, about a year ago, I was preaching through the book of Esther, and I bought um, John Piper's uh, book on providence, where it, it's a mammoth book, but I recommend it, because it's an amazing book. And John Piper says something in that book that just absolutely astounded me, and here's what he said. He said, one of the reasons why God doesn't give us all the details is this. God has a million billion purposes, actually says a million purposes in every situation that he uses to accomplish his divine plan. And we wouldn't be able to understand most of them. One of the things about our modern age is we think that we can know everything because we have supercomputers and we have the internet. But the fact of the matter is, beloved, we are limited and the fact of the matter is there are a million purposes that God has placed in every situation that are far beyond your ability to comprehend. So even if God took the time to explain to you everything he's doing in your life through every situation, you would not have the capacity to understand it all. And that's why Paul says here, we have the big picture. And the big picture is simply this. God is working all things together for his good. For our good. That's the point that you need to understand. Joseph, after he met his brothers, had a perspective that very few of us get. But praise God when we do get it. Joseph, when he sat with his brothers and his brothers were worried whether or not um, Joseph would kill them. Joseph said, am I in the place of God? I love that. We should say that more often. Christian, are you in the place of God? Do you have the capacity to be omniscient? Do you have the capacity to be omnipotent? Do you have the capacity to be omnipresent? The answer to that question is no. I'm not in the place of God, Joseph said. But he said, what you meant for evil, God meant it good and you think about that there are people who have done legitimate evil to you and you say to yourself well god why did you allow this evil to happen and i think joseph had it right it was meant for evil from the perspective of the one that's committing the evil but from god's perspective it's a different kind of view it's the eternal view and he says from that perspective all things work together for good that's a profound point. And I want to emphasize it again, but from a different perspective. You and I need to remember that there's no suffering that we endure that's in vain. I want you to go back throughout the scope of your life. 
as I was writing the sermon, I thought about all the things that happened in my life. The fact that my father died when I was young. I grew up without a father. The fact that I was born with horrible asthma. The fact that um, I got horribly burnt on my right arm. The fact that I grew up in abject poverty. The fact that throughout my life, I have had more things go wrong than they have go right. And as I look at the scope of my life, in those individual things, I could never see what God was doing. And to be quite honest with you, I still don't understand why God allowed those specific things to happen to me. But I know this, when I get to heaven, I'll be made beautiful. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what I know for a fact. I'll be handsome for the first time in my life, amen? I'll have a beautiful robe that God's going to give me. And most importantly, I'll have a new heart that I didn't have before. Listen to me, Christians. We don't know the specifics, and we don't have to. That's the beauty of our faith. But we know the biggest picture, and it's this. We will be conformed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Man, if you were Pentecostals, people would be running around in this place right now. Yeah, man, we need to get it. We need to be, you know, we need to get excited. We don't drink and throw raves or anything like that. But when, when the word of God speaks to us, it's okay to get a little loose. No, I'm serious. It's okay to get a little loose. That's a powerful point that God is making. Powerful point. We don't know that our suffering, we need to know that our suffering is not in vain. And again, I don't mean to diminish the suffering that you're going through. You know, one of the reasons why we know God loves us is that he takes our suffering seriously. He takes your pain seriously. And some of you have gone through some hard things, and I don't want you to think I'm dismissing that. You might need to sit in that for a little bit. That's okay. God will sit in it for you. All right, let's keep going. Second point is this. That the triune God is at work from start to finish. Now, most of us in here today um, say we know that, but I want to show you that. I want to show you a little nuance that Paul puts in there. Right after he says in verse number 28, he talks about the knowing. And then right after he gives this amazing promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then that word for. Now, listen. If you're in the habit of marking your Bibles, circle four. Because what four is doing there is it's grounding the promise in the person and work of God. And you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, why is that the case? Well, here's why that's the case. And this is what makes Paul not just an, a brilliant exegete of Scripture, but a brilliant exegete of the heart. Here's what Paul knows about us that we often forget about us. And it's this. We have a deep insecurity with abandonment. I've been a pastor now for almost 10 years. Next year will be 10 years. I can't believe that. Didn't know I'd last that long. Thought they'd kick me out, but they haven't yet. Right? I've never had anybody sit in front of me and say, Pastor, man, I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I just got a promotion. 
Uh, my kids are, are healthy. Things are going great with my wife. Man, it feels like God is not near me. Never had anybody do that. You know why? Because for the vast majority of us inside here today, we feel abandoned by God when things are going bad. Notice what the writer of Psalm says in Psalm 88, 14. He's in the midst of struggles, and what does he say? He says, oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Oh, Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you turn your face from me? Why does he say that? Because he's in the midst of struggle. That's how people talk when they're in the midst of strife. They don't talk like that when things are going good. And why is he talking this way? Because he's afraid that God has abandoned him. All of us have abandonment issues. Now, I'll talk about that next week. But I just want to throw that out there so you understand why the knowledge of the work of God in the midst of our lives is so important. Because all of us struggle with whether or not God is with us in the midst of struggle. understand that as God's people, he's always with us. That's, that's the beauty of this poem. Now, now, here's what I have to say. Most of us look at these words, foreknew, predestined, conformed, um, justified, glorified. We look at these words as cold theological terms. But I promise you they're not. And I don't have time to go through all of them. If you're looking for a Bible study, I want you to go through this passage. It's called the golden chain. And the reason why it's called the golden chain is each one of these are links that God uses to wrap us in his love and to remind us that from the very beginning to the very end of our lives, he is with us in joy and in sorrow and in sickness and in health. And what I want to do real quick as we look at the work of God, I want to point out just a few of them so you can get a flavor of what's happening here. We don't have time to go through each and every one of them. But I just want to give you a flavor. Look. Look at what he's saying is the work of God. First of all, for those whom he foreknew. Underline foreknew. What does that mean? Now, if you're a philosopher, you'll pause here for a moment and talk about how foreknowledge is unique to God in that God looks into the future and sees us. And in seeing us, because God's omniscience is upon us, he, that also means that God has the power not only to know what we're going to do, but to create the circumstances under which we do them. That's what Jude says. And do you see that? But I want to show you how this is a blessing to people who didn't know philosophy. And I think sometimes we forget that the people that were reading this didn't have an opportunity to read Bloch. They didn't have an opportunity to read Keller. And they didn't have an opportunity to read Piper. These were ignorant people who didn't even know how to read. This was read to them. So what did this word mean to them? And how is this word a blessing to them? Here's how. The word foreknew, yes. It means to know before time, but it means something even more potent than that. It means to love ahead of time. Now, there are some of you that are pregnant in this room. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. That would be awkward. But last time I checked, there's about five or six of us. Not us, but you. <laughs> not us, you. 
that are pregnant. And I remember when we were having our children, one of the things that I, I did from time to time was I went with my wife to the ultrasound. And, and those, were, those were awesome times. And when you go to the ultrasound and they put that thing on there and you start looking at the baby, you're like, oh, that's cute. They're sucking a finger or, oh, hey, I could see your mom's face in this one. And, and you point out all these features. And you're excited. Why? Because you begin to know that baby before time, before they're born. And in doing so, you set your love upon that child ahead of time. Before we had Madison, we knew that she was a girl, that we were going to name her Madison, and we had prayed for her and other people had prayed for her. We felt like we had a relationship with her before time. That's what this word means. And the power behind that word is this, that he, Paul was telling these people that God knew you while you were in the womb. He was knitting you together. And therefore, he didn't just know you in the womb, but because of his omniscience and his ability to see ahead of time, he telegraphed every single thing that happens in your life for your good or not. Do you believe that? That's what the word means. I'll give you another one. Look at the word predestination or predestined. Now, for most of us, we've, if we've been in reformedom for a while, we've had some battles over this, amen? We've argued with some folks, either online or in person. And I must admit, I'm one of those. Right? When I was in, when I was in uh, uh, seminary, I had, I had a fight or two around the water cooler over this word. But I'm a little bit more sanctified as I live, for sure. And let me tell you what this word is saying and why this word is so powerful. The word predestined simply means before waiting. Literally, what the word means in Greek. And and the best way for me to describe it is if you've ever used a GPS. By the way, praise God for GPSs. I am directionally challenged. So when you talk to me, don't say north, south, east, and west. I have no idea what you're talking about. And when I when I use my GPS, I type in a word or I type in a place. And what does the GPS do? It, it lays out a path to that place, right? And what do you do? Do you vary from that path? No, not if you want to get where you're going, because you have no idea where you're going. But what the GPS does is the GPS lays out a path for you to follow, and you follow that path, and you get there. And what Paul is saying is this. Before the one he foreknew, before the one he foreloved, he has laid out a path for you. And that path will take you down the valley of the shadow of death. That path will take you down uh, green pastures. That path will take you around winding roads. That path will take you through storms. But know this, there's a destination planned out for you at the end of that path. And nothing in this world will be able to thwart your progress that's the destination that's the work of God now if you want to hear more on that maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go at it again I don't know I need some time it's going to be quite for the sake of time 
let me just wrap up this point and say this real quick. The point that Paul is trying to make here is very clear. God has you from beginning to end. Christian, you need to know that. He has you from beginning to end. From foreknowledge to predestined, he has you from beginning to end. And the last thing I want to say is this. You can live with a sin. You can live with a sin. How important is a sin? to say, uh, I don't need insurance, I need assurance, right? And all the people in Cigna cringe, you know, like, <laughs> now listen, that's a bad way to live your life. You need insurance, you need health insurance, you need home insurance, you need all that sort of insurance. That's bad, that's a bad way to live your life, but it's actually very good, very, 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 very good theology. Because one of the things that she would often say is insurance comes by the work of man's hands. But assurance can only be gained by what someone has done for you. One of the things I want to point out that was amazing when I when I read through this is this. Do you know that there's not one imperative in Romans 8? There are no commands in Romans 8. Usually what pastor, why does that matter? Not a command. Here's why. Here's why. Here's why that matters. One of the ways that God through scripture assures us is by telling us more about what he will do for us than what he asks us to do for him. Did you know that? In fact, I looked it up because I was curious. There are almost four times more promises in the Bible than there are Over and over in scripture, God is telling you, I love you. Here's what I'm going to do for you. And I'm not going to ask you to leave me. Over and over. And the same thing is true for Romans 8. Not one command. God doesn't ask you to do anything. Instead, he promises you by his own power that all things will work together for your good. And that is independent of your actions. Now, pastors, what is this whole mess about sovereignty and personal responsibility? It doesn't do anything but hurt. It doesn't do anything but hurt. And it doesn't do anything but that for this one reason. God's sovereignty has the power to overrule that reason. It does. But the Bible tells us we're still called to vote well. God's never partial. That's why we don't believe in double predestination. We don't believe that God puts sinners on the path to to hell. He doesn't create preferences in the heart of sinners. He knows the exact opposite of that. Notice predestination is always set up for discipline. That's what he has laid out for sinners. That's the path he's given. And the assurance that you have of that path is that God gives you promises And those promises are yes and amen in Christ. I want to say one last thing. It's amazing to me how God gives assurances to his people. And it's often in ways that you never think he would. You remember when Jesus was leaving this earth, he looked at his disciples and he said, I'm going to die. And what did they say? No, 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 don't die. We don't want you to die. And he says it again. 
I need to die. And they're like, no, 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 you don't need to die. And then he says it again, I need to die. And he says, no, 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 I don't need to die. Now, why, why is it they didn't want him to die? Because he was their number one priority. together an army if people got killed in battle he could raise them from the dead if the army got hungry he could create a lot of bread and fish and feed them he was their insurance policy on death but Jesus says no no you don't understand I have to die because I don't want to give you any thoughts I want to give you everything and one of the most powerful assurances that Jesus gave to to us is not only dying but raising Because when he rose again, he assured us that everything he said is true. He vindicated on the cross and then vindicated on his resurrection. And what does that have to do with us today? Well, nothing. Beloved, if you believe that Jesus Christ rose again, that's the only assurance you're not a believer in here today then you're living by insurance not other people's you can have assurance today in the name of christ bring your faith and trust in him father we thank you lord what a powerful word and the implications are absolutely powerful in and of themselves lord i that the work of the spirit always is and always will be i pray for each and every soul in need of fresh new day lord i pray that you soften hearts father i pray that your spirit in the midst of the difficulties of this life would 